of Ruth, chapter 3. <laughs> Something funny happened to me on the way to church. A little preacher humor right there. Just kidding. It wasn't on the way to church. It was actually at home. So, you know, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. I have been married for 30 years, which means I know my wife pretty well. Um, but every now and then I still get surprised. Um, and this is a funny one. So picture yourself on the receiving end of this question. So who is the man? I asked my wife that. Who's the man? Now, honestly, I didn't expect her to say, well, of course you are. I just was curious. I was curious. So I said, who's the man? I didn't give her any qualifications or clarifications, just the question. Her immediate answer, Dwayne the Rock Johnson. <laughs> Oh, I love it. I love it. And then shortly after that, it was Tom Cruise. And then after that, it was Bill Gates. What did you notice about those answers? The strong, the handsome, and the rich. My, my own thought about the answer was Ronald Reagan, Harrison Ford, Elon Musk. Again, the powerful, the popular, and the wealthy. In, in answering the question, who's the man?, Kim's first inclination and mine was to gravitate towards those men who sit on top of the pile, right? Uh, like the prophet Samuel. I, you remember that story when Sam, the Lord sent Samuel to, to Jesse to find the new king in Israel? And he was struck by the oldest son, Eliab. Do you know why? Because he was tall and he was handsome, but the Lord had rejected him. In some sense, it's it's not wrong to admire men who succeed in worldly terms, but part of our problem is that we over-admire and exalt the physical characteristics. I mean, most of those men who've reached the pinnacles of their careers have gotten there with hard work and sacrifice, ingenuity and courage. But as a Christian man, it is insufficient for me to look at those men and model my life after what they have accomplished. It's not bad, necessarily. It's just insignificant, insufficient, rather. The question is, what if, if not aiming ourselves at Dwayne the Rock Johnson, which that's a joke for me, <laughs> what should we think then? How, how should we consider this question of who is the man? Here's the problem. In our culture, many don't really know. For almost a generation now, men have been under the culture's scrutiny and assault. It's now not good for men to be men. We must be like women, soft, quiet, submissive, docile, tender, modest. That is not what God requires of men. And though in godly women, those are wonderful qualities, in men, for the most part, they're not. Our culture is catechizing our boys and young men into an emasculated condition where men are encouraged to be pushovers, afraid, hesitant, risk-averse. I mean, our enemy's tactics have, from the very beginning, was included in that was to get men and women to reverse their roles. That's precisely what the devil did in the garden with Eve and with Adam. But now, 
he has so infiltrated the true influencers in our culture, Hollywood, social media, and schools, that now all the distinctions between sexes must be erased. But, and this is important, as the culture oversees this process, it doesn't mean women become like men, but that men become like women. Moreover, not only is it taboo for men to be men these days, what that actually means is lost, forgotten, or confused, even in the church. In its place, you get answers like what Kim and I gave, the strong, the wealthy, the powerful, the handsome, the popular. But we know, we know, right, that these are all fleeting, each one of them. But here's, the, here's in my opinion, the worst development of, it, of, of all. God keeps His promises through men who fear Him. And if there are no men who fear Him, by whom will God keep His promises? You're probably thinking faithful women. To be sure, Eve and Sarah and Rebecca and Rahab and Ruth and Hannah and Abigail and Bathsheba and Esther and even Mary had key roles to play in the history of redemption. Monica, Augustine's mother, Katerina von Bora, Luther's wife, Sarah, Jonathan Edwards' wife, Ruth Bell Graham. These, like their biblical forebears, are worth imitating for women and for men. That's not in question or to be minimized. However, it is God's design to keep His promises to His people through men who fear Him. It's through the seed of Adam that God has kept His promises. Seth, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Boaz, David, Solomon, Christ. The greatest tragedy of our age is not that the culture doesn't want men to be men. Who cares? They can't even tell us what makes a man. It's also not the greatest tragedy that our culture works to convince men to act like women. That's a problem, but not the greatest problem. The greatest tragedy is the church will no longer be a place of refuge without faithful men. It will no longer be a stronghold of truth without faithful men. It will no longer be committed to the Great Commission without faithful men. It will no longer be a place of true peace or human flourishing without faithful men. Without faithful men, the church will become ineffective and it will die. The churches in Europe and the mainline churches in this country have proven that over and over and over again. Beloved, God simply did not design His faithful women to carry these loads. Now, please hear me. It's not that you cannot, as if women lack skill or intelligence or courage. It is that you should not. The consistent biblical testimony from Genesis 2 is that God has made faithful women for partnership with faithful men through whom He keeps His covenant promises. This is what we see today in Ruth chapters 2 and 3. In these chapters, as we saw last week, we see more of what an incredibly worthy woman Ruth is. But we also get a fuller picture of a man who fears God, Boaz. And as he acts in the fear of the Lord, the Lord fulfills his promises. Boaz will be our focus this morning. I have four points to make with roughly two applications each. And the question we're answering is simple. What kind of man is it? through whom God keeps His promises. 
What kind of man is it through whom God keeps his promises? The question is important because what makes a man, a godly promise-keeping man, is, as I said, at risk of being lost. Let's read Ruth chapter 3. We'll read the entire chapter. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, Ruth, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it's true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning... If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lay down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And she went into the city and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Father, we turn to this word and I pray that you would open our hearts to it. In Jesus' name, amen. What kind of man is it through whom God keeps his promises? The first answer to that question is this. God keeps his promises to his people through men who protect the vulnerable. In what ways did, uh, did Boaz protect Ruth? Two ways. Number one, from danger. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not told the young men not to strike you? Look at verse 22. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. Knowing the potential for her as a foreign woman to encounter danger, 
Boaz instructed her to stay in his field so that she would not be struck or beaten is the word. This tells us the kind of work environment that Boaz fostered. Honest, God-fearing. It was a place for work free from the shenanigans of violence. Remember how he and the reapers greeted each other in chapter 2, verse 4? He came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Don't forget that Ruth is embedded in the time of the judges. Remember when everybody was doing right in whose eyes? Their own. And here you've got this man coming from Bethlehem who greets his, his field hands. The Lord be with you. Boaz feared the Lord. He worshiped the Lord and he created this environment where God was not absent and therefore neither was safety. Naomi recognized this in verse 22, telling Ruth it was good that Boaz instructed her this way so that she would not be assaulted. That word assault is used five times in the book of, books of Judges and Ruth. Three of those five times, it means killed. The real, there was a real danger for women in these fields. So he protected her from danger. He also protected her from harassment. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. This is after that midday meal. When Ruth rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles and leave it for her, and do not rebuke her. At that midday meal, Boaz revived his warning to the young men who might now be envious of Ruth, maybe even angry at her. You remember the scene. They sat down to eat and Boaz invited her, come, eat bread and drip it, uh, dip it in the, in the sour wine that she might be sustained. The others probably all brought their own provisions, but Ruth had none. And so Boaz provided for her. He provided for her, but it also required him to warn his workers. They could not reproach her, that is, insult her or shame her. They could neither rebuke her, which is to scold her or threaten her. So three times he made sure to communicate that she was his guest, his charge, his responsibility. Do not strike her. Do not scold her. Do not shame her. Because Boaz was protecting Ruth, Eventually, God delivered through her great-grandson, King David, a king after his own heart. So, two applications then. First, the church receives the promises of God through godly men who protect the vulnerable. Boaz exercised protection over one who had not earned it, one whose lineage was detested by Israel, one whose national God was an abomination, one who even aggressively asked if she could not glean around the edges of the field but lift some from the sheaves. But Boaz had created working conditions where the Lord was honored. Young women followed the reapers. Young men listened to his instruction. So when it was time for him to put a protective arm over Ruth, it wasn't forced or odd. I mean, the things that I had mentioned about Ruth and her lineage and her nation might have prevented him from protecting her but those things all gave way to his righteous commitment to protect the vulnerable. Brothers, do we recognize the blessings of God are unlocked for us as we protect the vulnerable? What would happen if you protected your wives from harmful influences, your children from predators online, at school or elsewhere, the children of the church from false teaching? What would happen? 
Well, the church, church's women and children will be cared for. The church's teaching and doctrine will be safeguarded. The church's mission to force back the gates of hell will be accomplished. We will create an environment that's a place of refuge and rest for the world. You might remember that the only safe place during the flood was the ark, right? The church is the ark of God sailing to the east, waiting for the Lord to dry up the sins of this world and land us safely. But brothers, that ark must be manned, literally. Secondly, and I'll say this every time, the one through whom God keeps His promises is preeminently Jesus Christ. He is the protector of the vulnerable. How? He's promised that none who come to Him by faith will be lost. That's John 6, 39. He's turning our present-day afflictions into an eternal weight of glory. 2 Corinthians 4, 17. He's promised all things work together for good for those who love God, Romans 8, 28. He prays for us before the Father, Romans 8, 34. He's raised us and seated us in the heavenlies far beyond any threat from our enemies. That's Ephesians 1, 20. Here's the question. How does the Lord keep these promises to the church? Godly men who protect the vulnerable. Boaz was a type of Christ. That is, he exemplified aspects of the character and the actions of Christ. His role as Ruth's protector carried the plot line of redemptive history, but pointed us to the one who truly protects the people, the Lord Jesus. Brothers, do you understand this? For us to protect the vulnerable among us is for us to witness the kingly protection of the Lord. By protecting the church, we're witnessing of the Lord. So for us to follow the dictates of the culture and step back from a role as protector of the vulnerable, not only do we disobey the Scriptures, but we don't witness the kingly watch care of the Lord. No, brothers, we must protect the vulnerable and therefore shine light on Jesus' kingly protection of us. By the power of the Spirit, the Lord Jesus will strengthen godly men to protect the flock, but more is required. The second answer to this is that God keeps His promises to His people through men who honor the faithful. Now, this is an important part of the story. Boaz was intent on seeing God at work in the lives of others, that he might honor the faithful and the Lord. Look at verse 10, chapter 2, verse 10. This is... After Ruth's request and after Boaz instructed her to stay in his field. Chapter 2, verse 10. Then Ruth fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to Boaz, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord under whose wings you've come to take refuge. Number one, Boaz honored Ruth by being interested in her story. I mean, we can't take this for granted. He was a wealthy landowner connected in Bethlehem. She was a foreigner, a widow, and impoverished. But there's a buzz in the town because Naomi was back. Remember, that's the end of chapter one. So Boaz made sure that he was told fully. That word that the ESV uses in verse 11, fully told, translates a Hebrew word which means exhaustively informed. 
the narrator makes it very clear that Boaz took pains to learn everything about Ruth and Naomi. Secondly, Boaz honored Ruth by understanding the gravity of her decision to leave her people. Now, we didn't dwell on this back in chapter 1, but Ruth made a monumental decision. Leave her father, leave her mother, leave her native land, leave everything, her culture, her clan, her opportunity for marriage and family. But more than that, she didn't just leave that. She went to live in a land, the sworn enemy of Israel. And she did that with no resources. In his interest, Boaz came to a full appreciation of what she did, but he also found out why. He discovered that she, that is Ruth, had put her trust in Naomi's God. She had come to trust in Yahweh and come to seek refuge in Him. We cannot disconnect Boaz honoring Ruth from the fact that Ruth was honoring Yahweh. She served Naomi so zealously out of devotion to the Lord, so Boaz honors her. The The third way that Boaz honors her is in the benediction that he invokes upon Ruth. The Lord repay you. The Lord reward, give you a full reward. He's so moved by what she's done that he does something incredible. Now, think of that. When he gives her a blessing, he is obligating the Lord to the contents of that blessing. He is calling the Lord to repay Ruth for what she has done, to give her a full reward because she's come to take refuge under his wings. You following? He invokes God to repay and reward. The question is, will he? And if he doesn't, hasn't Boaz just brought shame upon the Lord? But he knows it's not misplaced for him to give Ruth a benediction. He does again in chapter 3, verse 10. He says, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You've made this last kindness greater than the first. But in verse 14, chapter 3, verse 14, take a look at it there. This is also just a very touching thing that he does. Chapter 3, verse 14, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Bring the garment you were wearing and hold it out. He measured six measures of barley and put it on her. Their conversation where she basically asked him to marry her happened at midnight, which meant that she either had to stay and risk her reputation with the field hands that would wake up or go back to Bethlehem and risk her life in the journey. He told her to stay for her safety. Nothing inappropriate happened, but in the morning, to honor her and her sacrifices for Naomi and to protect her reputation, he made sure that she was not seen leaving the threshing floor. Further, he loaded her down with six measures of barley. Remember how I said that the ephah that she had beat out was a large bag of dog food? Remember that? This was a very, very large bag of dog food, like 50 to 90 pounds, so that she's carrying this. She walks back to her home, and what would the townspeople see? Oh, look at Ruth the Moabitess. Look at all of that barley she's gleaned. What a worthy woman. Boaz took steps to protect her reputation. No one would have questioned his ignorance of what had happened to Ruth and Moab. I mean, she was a Moabite after all. No one was required to give a foreigner such a, such a benediction as Boaz gave to Ruth. And it was over the top. It was over the top that he would take steps to load her down with grain. But listen, brothers, godly men honor the faithful no matter who they are. Two points here. First, the church receives the promises of God through godly men who honor the faithful. Brothers, do we honor and exalt those in our midst who are faithful to the Lord? You might think, how, how does the Lord fulfill His promises as we just like acknowledge and praise each other? 
the Lord creates a kind of covenant community on the backs of our praises, on the backs of our effort to honor the faithful. No, no, Naomi called Boaz a worthy man in chapter 2, verse 1, and so he is. But Boaz tells Ruth that she's known as a worthy woman in 3.11. Do you know in the Hebrew Bible, do you know where Ruth falls in the order of the books? Right after Proverbs. Any idea why you think that might be? Because she's a worthy woman. She's a Proverbs 31 woman. Proverbs 31, verse 10, an excellent wife who can find. She's far more precious than jewels. Excellent wife or worthy woman is a woman exemplified by Ruth, courageous, hardworking, demure, helpful, humble, bold, faithful. Boaz has no issues applying that worthy woman to Ruth. Look again at the contrast. The exalted one exalts the lowly. The one of long-term faith extols the newly faithful. And what happened? Did it go well for Boaz? Yeah, it did. Did it go well for the people of God? Absolutely. The Messiah issued from Boaz. Brothers, what kind of community would ours be if we regularly took time to honor the faithful among us? Would this be a refreshing place? Yes? Would this be a joyful place? Would it be an inspiring place? Would it be a place where people want to be more faithful? It would be. What if our practice, all of us, but especially us brothers, was to point out the ways each of us was honoring Christ by our lifestyles? Seeing the fruit in people like this, love in James Tobes, joy in Maddie Hurst, peace in Tanya Ovac, patience in Tim Sharp, you have no idea, <laughs> kindness Kindness in Paul Suffering, goodness in Michelle Arnold, gentleness in Molly Roach, self-control in Tim Tonkovic. Look, this is not an exhaustive list for those in this room, beloved. But for us, brothers, to openly and regularly acknowledge our brethren who are clinging to Christ and displaying the fruit of the Spirit, that honors Christ. And it sets the conditions for Him to deliver more of His promises. When we exalt and honor the faithful, we acknowledge a lifestyle of dependence upon the Spirit of Christ. We therefore encourage obedience. We encourage faithfulness. We encourage worship in the church. Brothers, that glorifies the Lord. The Lord keeps His promises through godly men who protect the vulnerable and honor the faithful, but there's more. He also keeps His promises through men who give generously. I think this is obvious with our man Boaz, right? Last week we saw how the Lord provided for the meek. How provision is written in the law of Moses that the poor can glean on the edges of fields, the droppings of grapes and of olives. How Boaz went above and beyond the letter of the law, exhorting Ruth to stay at his field, stay with his women, drink from the vessels that his men have drawn, pull from the collected grain. But in chapter 2, verse 14, Boaz did something very special, very personal. Look at it. He says to Ruth, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and had some left over. And we know he gave, she gave that leftover to Naomi when she got home. Ruth was clearly keeping herself at a distance, respectful distance. She knew her place as one of the servants. She said so herself in verse 13. However, he personally saw to it that she was fed, that she was revived. Roasted grain from his hand became her provision. 
He invited her to physically and objectively step out of her status as a servant, as a foreigner, even as an honored reaper. He welcomed her into his circle. I mean, this was huge. Immediately, I thought of an illustration of this in in the old movie, Ben-Hur. Who's seen it? Everybody should raise their hands. The main character, a Jew, Judah Ben-Hur, unjustly accused of attacking a Roman governor in Jerusalem. He was made a Roman galley slave. And he was aboard ship, a ship that was in battle, that was struck and it was sinking. He escapes his bindings, but he saves Quintus Arius, a Roman military commander. I mean, the distance between that is massive. Jewish galley slave, Roman commander. But Quintus shows his thanks by adopting Judah Ben-Hur, making him his son an heir to his fortune. The distance that Boaz asked Ruth to travel in that simple moment of generosity was from a foreign widow servant to one in whom he made personal investment more than Ruth would come to realize. In chapter 2, verse 17, chapter 3, verse 15, he loads her down with these massive hauls of barley. The first one, a 30 to 50 pound bag. The second one, a 50 to 90 pound bag. It's extremely generous of him to allow her to glean in the field in the first place. This is over the top, but not for Boaz. He was a godly man. God has promised that he will provide for his people, right? Right? We know that promise in Matthew chapter 6. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. All these things will be added to you. We love that promise. But how will all these things be added to us? How? What's the main, not the only, but the main way God will keep this promise? Godly men. Godly men who recognize the gift of work and strive at it so their families and the church family is amply supplied. I mean, we love that promise, don't we? That God will provide all that we need that we might focus on the kingdom. But do we also recognize that we, godly men, are the main means of God to keep it? How was Ruth provided for? How was Naomi provided for? How was there a King David? How was there a Jesus Christ? The generosity of a godly man. The Lord doesn't call us to be men who are workaholics or who endlessly seek more, but men who seek honest employment, contentment in it, and work at it as Christ would have us. These spirit-filled men would be generous in their families and to the church as we recognize what we have, we have from the Lord. Now, we don't know the the backstory of Boaz, right? But if, if this was the way he normally was, we see a picture of a man who loved his work. He loved his workers, and he looked for ways to be generous, even to strangers. And as a result, the promises of God to be Jehovah Jireh, the God who, the Lord who provides, those promises were kept. Brothers, are you generous? Do you see your income as a gift from the Lord, 10% of which belongs to Him and His church? Do you spend your time for yourself and for others? Are you so generous that you spend your resources in such a way that sometimes it cramps your own budget? Have you come to believe that you cannot be more generous than the Lord and His church? The time 
The time for us to be generous, beloved, is now. God has promised to be generous above and beyond what we can ask or think if only we godly men would put him to the test. The world is not generous. It's greedy. The world doesn't say give. It says take. The world says invest in what you can see. The Lord says invest in what you cannot see, but will endure his kingdom. The Lord asks us to do no more than he did, right? Lord Jesus is the one who is generous. He gave up his place in counsel with the Father and the Spirit to take up our place in the dirt. He subjected himself to the law, obeying it perfectly, giving himself over to sinners who would punish him for the sins of his people, not his own. He would walk down that path knowing that his generosity, this is, this is the interesting thing, his generosity was topped by the Father's generosity. Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here is how the Father surpassed even the generosity of the Son. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' reward was exaltation. In some incomprehensible sense, the Father was more generous to the Son than the Son was generous to us. Brothers, do we not see that the same dynamic is true when we are generous? We must be generous that God will keep His promises through it, and He'll reward you with joy along the way. Lastly, one more way the Lord keeps His promises through men who fear Him is that He pays particular attention to men who act selflessly. Godly men protect the vulnerable. Godly men honor the faithful. Godly men are generously give. Godly men act selflessly. Perhaps this is the most important point. All that Boaz has done so far for Ruth was to act as a father to a daughter. My daughter is what he used to address her three times. We get the impression, though, that it was a term of endearment, not necessarily a statement of age difference. We don't know how old Boaz was for certain. He was probably between Naomi's age and Ruth's age. He wasn't Elimelech's brother, but he also wasn't young enough to be one of Elimelech's sons either. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. At midnight, the man was startled, Boaz. And he turned over, and behold, a, a woman was laying at his feet, and he said, Who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Ruth, in the night, had uncovered his feet, and the midnight air chilled. The, the word in the Hebrew is shiver. He was startled because the cold woke him up. Turning over basically means he reached down to grab his outer garment and cover his feet back. But as he did, he saw, he saw a woman to his shock. Now, remember what Naomi told Ruth, remember? Go, do all these things, uncover, wait till he wakes up, and then what? Do you remember? Listen for what the man will tell you to do. Not surprisingly, the worthy woman doesn't wait for Boaz to come to his own conclusions. She makes a request, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, she isn't asking this because she's cold. She is calling his attention back to one of the blessings that he'd given her. Chapter 2, verse 12, a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel under whose wings you've come to seek refuge. Rather than spreading his garment or wings, because the word can be translated either way, rather than spreading it over his feet, she asks him to symbolically spread it over her. 
She asks him to marry her. She's asking him to be the agent of the blessing of God that he had given her. Let's let's be real clear on what she's asking, okay? A redeemer was provisioned by the law of Moses for the inherited land of a family to not be lost to debt or enslavement or death. God's promise to Abraham involved a people and a place. If a clan died off in a course of time, what would happen to that land? What would happen to that family name? What would happen to the promise of God? All of those would be lost. The Redeemer was the solution. Perhaps in our day and age, we would call them guardians at litem or will executors or holders of power of attorney for a family. It was their role to make sure that all that belonged to a family, land, enslaved relatives, even prosecuting those who committed crimes against a family, the Redeemer was responsible for all of that for that clan. Ruth was asking Boaz to redeem Elimelech's land. But what she asked was for more. She was asking Boaz to marry her so that she could raise up an heir for Elimelech. Leveret marriage is what it's called from the Latin word levir, which means brother. This was also in the law of Moses. When a brother of a deceased man married his widow and and had children by her in order that the deceased brother's name and property would not be lost. On Ruth's mind wasn't love or safety, but her family. And as a result, the integrity of God's promise to Abraham. You following me? So here's what she's asking of Boaz. Four things. Number one, to purchase Elimelech's property and to bring Naomi into his home, not as his wife, but as his charge. Because if he were to marry Naomi, it would not solve the problem of an heir on the land. Naomi was too old to bear children. Number one. Number two, to marry a younger, non-virgin woman from Moab, closing the door to marrying an Israelite woman. Number three, to raise up a child who would inherit not Boaz's land, but Elimelech's land, taking it out of Boaz's possession. And number four, to risk Boaz's own family land, Because if Boaz had only one child and that child was inheriting Elimelech's land, what would become of Boaz's land? It would be lost. Ruth was asking him to do all of these things. Look at verse 11, chapter 3, verse 11. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it's true that I'm a redeemer, and yet there's a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if not, if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. He's amazed at her steadfast love for Naomi and Elimelech and even her deceased husband. She didn't seek marriage to a young man to make sure she was taken care of. She pursued the redemption of her family. And his response, my daughter, do not fear. I will do all that you ask. Can you believe that? Her request is bold, but his willingness to do it? Brothers, is there such a man in this church? He introduces a wrinkle in the plan because there's a relative closer to Elimelech than he is, but he's determined to do two things. Number one, get that man to do his lawful duty to care for Elimelech's name or do it himself. So help him God. God keeps his promises to his people 
through men who act selflessly. Did you notice also how fast the dialogue went between the two of them? Boaz didn't respond with scorn or anger. He didn't even say, let me think about that. Talk to my banker, my lawyer, my financial advisor, and I'll get back to you. He didn't put any qualifications on Ruth. He didn't bargain with her. No, all that you do, I will ask. Or we could say it this way, all that I stand to lose by doing this, I will sacrifice if God requires of it. She wasn't his daughter. She wasn't even his kin. She was a stranger that he met just a few months prior. Boaz isn't doing charity here. That's way too risky. He's acting for the good of the promises of God. Boaz fears the Lord. And to step into doing what Ruth is asking, no matter how radical it is, for Boaz was no risk at all. Perhaps that's our biggest challenge, brothers. We don't act selflessly because we think that if we do, we're somehow going to lose. Boaz didn't see it that way. All he saw was a gain for the glory of the Lord. And so the question for us is this. Brothers, does our selflessness have a limit? Do we choose not to extend it beyond our family or our friends to people who will recognize the sacrifices that we're making? Do we choose to extend it only to those who can help us out if we ever have need? Or, for the sake of God, the glory of Christ and the provision of the church, are we willing to act selflessly no matter the cost? Nothing about this is easy, brothers. But how about this? What if God the Father gave you and me the same provision He gave His Son so that his son could act selflessly, what if he gave you and me the same provision? You know what? He actually did. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ and we received the Spirit of Christ, we received the same power for selflessness that drove the Lord. Brother, by the power of the Holy Spirit, there are no obstacles to us acting as selflessly as Jesus Christ. It's not something that you can do. It's not something that I can hold you accountable to do. It's too much but not in Christ. It is what Jesus did. It is what He has given us His Spirit to do because, brothers, God keeps His promises through godly men who act selflessly. The very proof of that, the very power of God to keep His promises is before us in the table. So let's eat.